I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the associates pastor here at Livingstone's Church, and I am honored and privileged to continue our series on shame, the great relationship killer. Now, I want to ask you a question. Now, we've been doing this series for five weeks now. Are you, are you sick and tired of talking about shame yet? Some say yes, some say no. <laughs> I want to tell you, I'm not. I could talk about shame for on and on and on, because this series is not just something we're preaching. This series has been rocking me and my family and those around us. I want to start with a story, just telling you why, how practical this whole series has been for me. So, you know, for me, I have a morning routine. I get up around 6 o'clock, you know, I have my cup of coffee, I spend time with the Lord, I listen to worship music, I read. It's like my time. The kids are still asleep. I get to center myself, get myself ready for the rest of the day. Anyone else has a morning routine? And morning routine, okay. So you know, if you miss your morning routine, it's like you're off for the rest of the day, right? Right? So early in the week, I got up, I'm excited for my morning routine, my time with the Lord. I have a lot I got to bring to him, uh, big meetings ahead. My three-month-old, her name's Elora, little baby girl, she decides to wake up at that time and she does not want to go back to sleep. So as I'm getting ready to get out of my room, my wife is there like trying to rock her and trying to put her down. My, t- my wife is exhausted. She's been up all night with the baby. So I thought, you know, I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to take the baby. I'm going to rock her. And I'm going to put her down. You know, it won't take that long. And then I'm going to go throughout my day. Well, about an hour and 45 minutes later, <laughs> I finally lay my baby girl down. She's upset. I'm upset. She's crying. I'm crying. Okay. <laughs> We're both a mess. Okay. And it started with this little inconvenience of not being able to put my baby to sleep, okay? It starts to snowball, okay? You know how this works. Start snowballing. I'm thinking, I'm exhausted. My, my time with the Lord, I, I got a 10-minute window before I got to get my other kids up ready for school. I feel rushed. I feel anxious. And I start thinking, man, I'm a 42-year-old. I cannot handle this newborn, you know? Those, those dark thoughts, you know, shameful thoughts, incapacitating thoughts. Now I'm like, no, I don't have enough time for my, my baby girl. I don't have enough time for my kids. I don't spend enough time with my wife. I don't spend enough time with my church, you know? And next thing you know, I'm like, I'm a terrible dad. It starts going at my identity, right? I'm a terrible dad. I'm a terrible husband. My wife thinks I'm a loser, and God has abandoned me. Okay, in a span of like two or three minutes, I went from, man, I lost my time in the morning to I'm the biggest loser and God has left me. Okay, real story. In two or three minutes, I went there. Now, in the past, in a few months ago, if that would have happened to me, what I would have done and what I did do in the past was I just suck it up, dealt with it, move on without my day. But what I would have done, I would let that heavy emotion stay with me all day. That frustration, that residual anger, I will walk around, be frustrated, anger, or short fuse, and I'll probably unleash shame without knowing it until those closest to me, like my friends, my wife, my, my family, my kids. But because of this series, because we've been talking about shame, we've been talking about how to attune our ears and our hearts to understand the message of shame, I knew the enemy was coming after me. He's attacking me. I knew that God has a blessing for me today, and the enemy is trying to kill and destroy and steal it. Now, just knowing that didn't make it any better. I was still feeling so disoriented. I couldn't tell what's up and down. I feel like I'm in the middle of a storm. I call it a shame storm. I was lost. But what I did, I literally got on my knees. I went to my back room. I got on my knees. I had like two minutes left now. I just cried out to God. I said, God, help me. 
I am lost right now. Help me. Just help me. Help me find direction. Help me get clarity. I got up, got my kids up, make sure they were, you know, moving. Well, on my way, I'm walking to the kitchen to um, get the breakfast ready. And then my wife came out. I did not expect for her to come out because she's been exhausted all night. She's, she's tired. But she came out, and I knew that was the Lord. I said, hey, babe, give me one minute. And I start practicing vulnerability with her. Just want to let you know this morning, I felt this way. I feel like you don't even like me anymore. I feel like my kids think I'm a loser, blah, blah, blah. I start practicing. I start sharing. I start being transparent with her. Now, we've been doing that quite a bit with each other, so she didn't think I was crazy. She knew, she knew what I was doing, right? But even as I'm sharing with her, I felt my brain coming back into my head. I felt like I got clarity again. I felt like I could remember again. It's almost as if I, I, I began to see myself in the movie, and I could see uh, myself from a third-person perspective, and I saw that I was under attack. I could see that clarity, and it brought me hope. It brought me life. And it wasn't because I had coffee, because I hadn't had coffee yet. Long story short, by the time I took my kids to school, like an hour later, driving them to school, I said to my kids, I said, hey, guys, do you know why today is going to be a great day? No, why, Dad? I said, because the sun is still shining, the sky is still blue, and my Father in heaven is still in charge. And my son said, well, by that argument, every day should be a great day. I said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> true story. Everything I said is absolutely true. In fact, I came to church. I wrote that story down immediately afterwards because I said, Lord, I know you want me to share that story. This is how practical this message on shame is. And every day since then, sometimes twice a day, the storm of shame has trying to hit me and get, come to me and get to me. And I once again cry out to God and I reach out to my wife and I share with her. You know, Pastor Ron last week shared a powerful message about how shame, the devil using the shame tries to attack Jesus Christ. If the devil will use shame on the Son of God, why wouldn't he come after you? Especially if you've been called according to his purpose. And today, we want to continue the series on shame because we want to expose the power of shame and how it works. Okay, as an example, I just share to cause a breaking down, a disintegration of who you are inside. It starts with inside, breaking this inside, breaking your mind, your heart. Okay, and then it spreads like a virus to your relationship to cause a, a disintegration or brokenness of relationship or isolation of the relationships around you. We want to expose shame today. And furthermore, I want to talk about the Achilles heels, the kryptonite for shame. The one place shame doesn't want you to go in the middle of this storm is to practice vulnerability. Now, it's easier said than done. That's why I want to lay out the case for you. I want to talk about how shame works. I want to talk about what we're supposed to do. Now, before we start, I want to give a quick review. Okay, for those who hasn't been with us, the first time you're hearing about shame, you're like, what is this whole series about? When we talk about shame, we often think about something bad we did, something we want to hide. But I want to kind of reduce shame to basically two really negative feelings. The feeling that you are not enough, that you are unworthy, that you don't have what it takes. You feel powerless. That's one feeling of shame. The other feeling of shame is that you are not valuable. You are unimportant. Okay, you are rejected. You are ugly. You are cast out. Those two feelings are similar, but they're not the same. They're the two feelings of shame. 
Now, I want to talk about how these two feelings in the very beginning cause a disintegration of who you are inside. Now, before we start about disintegration, I need to talk about, I need to uh, uh, share about what integration means. Integration. The definition of integration is different, diverse parts working together as a whole. Okay? So, for example, everything in the world is made up of diverse parts, right? You are, your body is made of diverse parts. You got a brain, hands, arms, legs, et cetera, et cetera, okay? The United States is made of diverse parts. United States, bunch of states, okay? The church is made of diverse parts. Even atoms are made of diverse parts, okay? So there's diversity, but they work together to achieve a unified purpose, and that's why there's beauty in diversity and unity, and that's called integration, Okay? Paul talks about the beauty of integration when he describes the church. He says there are many parts, but there's only one body. You see what I'm talking about? That's the beauty of integration. What shamed us is in the middle of integration, he comes and he disrupts us so that the different parts are no longer talking to each other. They cannot communicate, and there's division and there's isolation. They block one part from another, Okay? So this is why in the middle, so, so, so in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, when shame hits you, it causes your brain, your mind, your heart to be disintegrated. This is the reason why in the middle of shame, you do things you normally would never do. I don't know about you. I'm sure many of you can relate. When shame hits me, okay, when I feel powerless, I, I don't even know it's shame. I just feel this negative feeling of powerlessness. Okay? I lash out many times on my kids. I will use a tone with my, my kids I would normally never use with anybody else in the world. And when I'm in the middle of the storm, I cannot think. I'm like, what was I doing? What was I thinking? You ever been there before? What were you thinking? Well, the truth is you weren't thinking. Because when shame comes, there's a disintegration of the part of your brain that normally think about consequences. Well, how about my, my story I just shared? When I talk about in the middle of the storm, I cannot remember that my wife loves me. I cannot remember that God's crazy about me. The memory part, the recall part of my brain, my heart has been severed from the rest of me. In the middle of all of this, I feel I'm utterly alone and rejected and abandoned. This is the power of shame to cause a disintegration of our mind and our heart. But what God has called us, God has called us to have an integrated or whole heart or whole mind. Matthew 23, 37, you guys know all these verses. Love the Lord with all your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. James 1, chapter 8 talks about what happens when shame hits us. Such is the double-minded and unstable in all they do. Shame causes double-mindedness. It causes us to be divided and disintegrated. So first, shame starts with disintegration of who you are inside. But it doesn't end there. It continues into our relationships. I jumped on the point, but back to disintegration of who you are, okay? This is the reason why many times somebody could be so good at one thing and so bad at something else. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? For example, we know some athletes. They are literal geniuses on the football field, Okay? They are excellent. They are awesome on the, on the basketball court. But for some reason, they cannot translate those skill sets into their relationship with their family. Or I know people who are so good at um, sales or engineering or becoming uh, their, their business, 
But whenever they approach finances, all of a sudden they're like a five-year-old. They're buying everything they have or everything they see. Or they're not buying anything because they're afraid of losing money. Why is that? Why is that the, the skill set, the perseverance, the character of one element doesn't translate to other elements? It's because in the area of this, of their life, there is shame. See, I demonstrate, I, I, I demonstrate this principle in my life because I generally make pretty good decisions. I think about, you know, consequences. I don't procrastinate. But in the area about my teeth, I make some of the worst decisions ever. I know I need to go get a checkup. My phone tells me I need to go get a checkup. The doctor calls to tell me I need to go get a checkup. But for some reason, I just don't go. Year after year. And I pay for it. I pay for it in pain. And I pay for it in money and consequences. And I think back, why did I not make these simple decisions? It's because when I was younger, there was tremendous shame around my teeth. That's a very practical example. How about you? Well, there's some areas of shame in which in this area, you are acting like a three-year-old. Because there's this integration of your mind and your heart. But it just starts there. Okay? And there's a neurological perspective, which I think I'm not even getting to. But the goal of this disintegration of your mind and your heart, the end goal of this is cause a, dis- a disintegration of your relationships, okay? of those people around you. I'm going to go quickly to Genesis chapter 2. At the very end of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Adam and his life, uh, wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Now, this was the original state that God wanted us to have. Naked, vulnerable, transparent with each other, but there is no shame. So keep that in mind. Now, look at what happens when sin, when sin entered into the world. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay? So the immediate act after sin... Okay, is that they start covering themselves. Now, I am not advocating that we walk around without clothes on. That's not what I'm saying today. So let's make that very clear. I want to remind you, however, the immediate result of sin is building a wall next to each other. It's a loss of vulnerability and transparency. We are saying, well, they're just getting dressed. What's the big deal? Well, look at what happened next. When God came looking for Adam and Eve, Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Think about the gravity of this for a second. Adam and Eve were created for intimacy. They were created so they can enjoy the fellowship of their heavenly father. And because of sin, all of a sudden, he's hiding from his father. He's hiding from his father. This is a disintegration of their relationship. But it gets better, or it gets worse, actually. When God questioned them, did you eat from this fruit, from this tree that I told you not to eat from it? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. This disintegration of relationship just continues. At the first sign of trouble, okay, Adam, the firstborn of all mankind, the father of us all, quickly turned into a coward. But not just a coward, he turned into a victim, He did not take responsibility. He blamed his wife, but then passive-aggressively, he blamed God. This woman you gave me, you gave me, gave me the fruit. And that thread of being a victim, blaming others, being a coward still flows through us. That blood still flows through us today. Man, how often we come home, 
We're exhausted. We're frustrated. Our kids are screaming. I'm speaking to myself now. My wife is not cleaning things like you're supposed to or blah, blah, blah. Instead of taking responsibility, get up off the couch, help them, engage with your kids, help them in their homework. We blame your wife. You blame your kids. You blame your job. You blame the economy. You blame everyone else. But here's the result of victimization. It causes an isolation or disintegration of your relationship. It severs our relationship. But this severing, this disintegration continues with their kids, Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, the Lord was confronting Cain. He's inviting him. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See, God was admonishing Cain, inviting him to say, repent and draw close to me. But Cain took that through shame. He interpreted that story, that narrative, into a story of rejection and shame. In the middle of shame and rejection, what did Cain do? He committed the ultimate act of relational disintegration, and he murdered his brother. Disintegration has completed its job. Shame has completed its job. And ever since then, there are two ways shame in us, through us, has caused us to isolate and, dis- and destroy our relationship. I call it fight or flight. You can be like Cain and fight. That's generally my choice of action. Or you can choose Adam and run away. Fight or flight. So for me, when I'm dealing with shame, and most of the time I don't even know that's shame, I just feel this frustration, this anger, this nastiness, this weak feeling of not enough. When I feel those feelings, I tend to project it onto other people through resentment. Without knowing that I blame others for my feelings of inadequacy. I'll give you one specific example. Early in my marriage, whenever my wife will forget to turn off the air conditioning when she leaves the house, I will be so mad at her. Like unreasonably, like Hulk mad at her. No joke. It's a painful memory. We're good now, but man, it's, it's bad. And I will rationalize. I'll make up excuses. I will say, well, it's because, you know what? It's because we want to save money. We want to be energy efficient, blah, blah, blah. That's not the reason. The reason is in my heart, there's a deep source of shame that I, I don't make enough money. I cannot provide for my family. I didn't even know that. I just knew that whenever I see that AC on running all day, I'm like, <gasps> You did what? That's how I display. I cope with the negative feelings. I blame her. And she was severely damaged by that. Maybe for you, it's social media. You see someone make a post. And whether it's right or wrong, it triggers you. And all of a sudden, you're you're throwing death threats on social media, Instagram, and Twitter. I mean, it's toxic in the social media world right now. It's triggering people left and right because of shame, and people don't even know it. Maybe it's revealing itself through obsessive control, okay? When shame hits you, you feel powerless. You're like, I have zero control over this. But there's one thing I have ultimate control, so I'm going to hold on to it with dear life. It might be your wife. It might be your kids. It might be your job. And next thing you know, you're strangling this thing to death because you feel shame over something else but you don't even recognize it. How about this one? Cursing. How about this one? Road rage. How about this one? My favorite, defensiveness. You could never be wrong. Have you ever been in the middle of argument, especially with your kids, and halfway through you're like, I might be wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> my five-year-old might be right. This is not good. I got to get out of this somehow without him realizing that he's right and I'm wrong. Hey, guys, you guys want some ice cream? <laughs> what? Why is it that we can't be wrong? Perhaps our identity is so tied to being right because of shame that if we were ever proven wrong, we would realize that we are worthless. This is the power of shame. Look, I've done pretty much almost everything here except social media because I don't go on social media because I probably would do that. So I'm not calling you guys out. I'm calling myself out. So that's fight like Cain. Or you could choose flight like Adam. Now, Adam literally hid but for many of us, it could be like passive aggressiveness. You know what I'm saying? Instead of actually confronting the issue, you just give people cold shoulders. You just don't look at them in the eye. You just throw little snide remarks here and there. And when people ask you, Andrew, are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Or maybe it's gossip. Instead of actually addressing the issue with the person, you talk to everyone else around it. How about this one? Unforgiveness in your heart. Never addressing the issue. Bury it in your heart until the resentment allows you to blow up. How about this? When fathers would rather stay at work because they feel more fulfilled and accomplished at work than come home and engage with his kids. You're hiding. This is the root for people pleasing or inability to say no. How about this? Literally hiding. My son, Nehemiah, when he's hit with shame, I could say anything to him. I'll be like, hey, son, um, do you have any homework today? He would disappear and hide. He would disappear and hide. I have come up with a, with a cold word between me and Nehemiah. I said, are we connected? You hear me say that? Because I'm not saying, are you physically with me? I'm saying, in your heart, are you with me? Because I need to know if he's under shame right now. Now, early in my relationship with my wife, in the middle of our conversations, especially when it gets confrontational, she literally walks out or she feels compelled to walk out. We actually have to lay groundwork ground rules to rules of engagement when we argue. Number one rule, no joke, no one gets to leave the room. I mean, you got to go to the bathroom, you got to go to the bathroom, but you know what I mean. <laughs> In other words, you can't disengage, just leave the conversation. Now, that's mostly my fault because I was being a jerk, but you know what I'm saying. From Adam to Eve, Cain and Abel, David, Absalom, Tamar, Amon, all the way throughout generations. Shame has caused the disintegration of our relationship. And right now, United States, we are the divided states of America. And shame's there, giddy, because we are so divided. And here's the trick. The crucial relationship we most need to overcome shame, we have pushed away through shame. This is strategically genius from the demonic standpoint. The very thing we need, we have cast away, and the devil is laughing and joking. Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Doesn't that describe the consequences of shame? Jesus said, house divided against itself, it cannot stand. So what do we do? What do we do in the middle of the storm of shame? I already told you guys this. Spoiler alert, I already gave it to you guys. You do it by practicing vulnerability. Vulnerability means you put yourself in the place where you could get hurt. Just a quick survey. Who likes to get hurt? Anybody? Anybody like to get hurt? This weekend, Saturday, what are you up to? I'm going to just get hurt. 
nothing better to do, so I'm just going to. No way, no one likes to get hurt. I don't like to get hurt. But I, wanna, I want you to understand how allergic our culture has been to vulnerability. At the same time, how much we have elevated and worship invulnerability or invincibility. I mean, there's a practical side to all of this. Like, as a business, I don't want to be open and vulnerable to a hostile takeover. And, you know, as a parent, I don't want my house with no walls so people can just take my kids. Well, that's, that's dumb. I, mean, I get all that. But we have elevated invulnerability to such a high level. We worship superstars like Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, because they don't lose. Our favorite superhero is Superman because he's invincible. He's invulnerable. But I like cheering for winners like anybody else. I like superheroes like anybody else. But those aspects of, of, of vulnerability, invulnerability has creeped into how we view relationships. To the point which a man has a hard time admitting he has weaknesses. Let alone shed tears or cry or show emotions. Or God forbid a man asks for directions because he's lost. I never had that problem because I'm lost a lot. If I don't ask for directions, I'll still be lost. Good thing for a GPS before GPS times. I got to look at a map, right? But I know there are corporate cultures and there are church cultures. Unfortunately, church cultures, if you reveal your weakness, you'll get eaten alive. I'm sure you guys experienced some of those cultures too. But let me try to change your paradigm. That's, that's our world's perspective on vulnerability. But just imagine with me real quick, just real quick, that maybe the pinnacle of manhood, the epitome of creation is not Superman, okay, but vulnerable man. Just think about that for a second. Sounds silly. Instead of, super, instead of S, it's a V. Instead of Superman, it's vulnerable man. Okay. Instead of the man of steel, it's the man of great sorrows. What if being vulnerable is actually exactly how God has designed us from the very beginning, before sin entered the world? What if vulnerability is actually a crucial part of our inheritance? And that as part of Christ's redemption of the world and of us, that we are supposed to be redeemed to the state of vulnerability. I know it's scary, but just imagine for me for a second that as part of our redemption and transformation through Jesus Christ, that we're supposed to go back into vulnerability. Just imagine for me for a second. Remember the end of Genesis chapter 2. They were naked, transparent, vulnerable to each other, but there was no shame. Just a quick side note. You know when they, when they invented Superman and came up with this whole thing, they kept making him more powerful. Like he used to be able to jump really far and next thing you know he could fly. Okay? As he became more and more powerful, he became less and less relatable to everyone else and people stopped buying comic books. So what they had to do is they had to invent kryptonite. You guys remember kryptonite? They had to make up kryptonite because Superman was too unrelatable to people. And I look at that, I'm thinking, maybe the hero we really need is not Superman. We need a vulnerable hero to which we can relate to. And I want to present to you Jesus Christ, vulnerable man, our hero that we can truly relate to. Once I start studying this idea of vulnerability, and I start to look through the lens of vulnerability, I realize, man, 
The story of vulnerability of Jesus Christ is unbelievable. I want to take you through it. I want to remind you what vulnerability means. It means putting yourself in a place where you can get hurt physically and emotionally. Okay, everyone got that? Let's look at how Jesus was born. He was born as an infant, as an unborn, through a teenage girl who was not married in the Middle East. Think about that for a second, okay? If I were the one who said, who, who, I'm the design, God says, Andrew, I want you to design the entry for my son. I would be thinking, um, maybe like manna from heaven, Jesus Christ, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, 30-year-old, show in the middle of the desert, you know, buff as anything, say, hey, I'm ready to save the world. I mean, that would be the entry I design. But that's not what God designed. Through a, through a teenage young lady, he delivered Jesus Christ. Now, back then, as it is unfortunately today, the unborn is the most vulnerable place you can be, let alone from a young girl who was not married. She herself became vulnerable because she was pregnant and not married. She could have been cast stone, killed for that. Now, even though she wasn't, but just imagine Jesus growing up. Just imagine for a second. You know, Jesus had a bunch of other brothers and sisters, so they're growing up. He's a young boy. He's playing. And you got the neighbor saying, why does Jesus don't really look like James and the rest of these other guys? Well, I'll tell you what. They said Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but I bet it was a pool boy. I bet his dad, that's not Joseph's, not really his dad. She was pregnant before. And he pains me just to think about the cloud that Jesus grew up in, that stigma that he might be illegitimate. Why did God orchestrate that? Why did God put Jesus in the place where he could be ostracized, he could be made fun of. Let's talk about Jesus as an adult. Oh, wait, I didn't even get into the fact that when Jesus was young, when, he was, when Mary was pregnant, Herod, the most powerful man in Judea, was trying to kill him. Talk about vulnerability. But even as Jesus became an adult, he was susceptible to all our weaknesses. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired, he had to take a nap. He was emotionally vulnerable of others. He wept in public for all to see. He shared his struggles with his disciples. And the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most beautiful places of transparency and vulnerability. He said to his disciples, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He was utterly vulnerable with his disciples. He was vulnerable with his dad in heaven. He says, if possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. So Jesus wasn't looking at cross and pretending he's the man. Ah, I got this. No big deal. No. He was utterly transparent to God and to each other to say, this is my biggest struggle. I need some help. Help me. Be with me. I'm struggling. How about this one? Jesus knew that Judas will betray him. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, not just Peter, all his disciples. But guess what? He placed them in his most inner circle. Can you be more vulnerable than that? If I'm consulting with somebody, with a king, I'll be like, do you really want that traitor in your camp? Because that's not wise. That's foolish. You're making yourself vulnerable to attack, which is exactly what Jesus did. Why would he do that? And finally, is there anything more vulnerable than Jesus surrendering himself to the cross? Beaten, stripped naked, and hung before the world. You know, in the pictures, the paintings, the movie renditions of Jesus Christ on the cross, 
And I appreciate this. They always cover him with a loincloth. But you know the truth is, he was utterly naked before the world. And everyone peppering, mocking his misery. That is vulnerability. And the ultimate act of vulnerability is Jesus saying to his father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. I give it all to you. I trust you. When you look through the lens of vulnerability, you recognize God has designed the life of Jesus Christ through putting him in the place where he get hurt. And he did get hurt. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus go through this? Maybe, I think, is because Jesus didn't come just to save us from our sins. He absolutely did that. But Jesus came to give us a roadmap, the blueprint to overcome the most powerful weapon of the enemy, shame. He said, follow me and practice vulnerability so you can overcome also. Okay, reality check. We can talk about the theology of vulnerability, what Jesus did all day. The truth is being vulnerable means you could get hurt. Nobody likes to get hurt. Nobody likes to get hurt. I don't like to get hurt. That's why I don't like to go to the dentist. I don't like to go hurt. But here's the truth. It's really hard. Especially if you've been vulnerable before and you got burned. Nobody wants to go back there. I used to trust this guy and did the business and blah, blah, blah. I don't want to do business with anyone again. I used to, I got in this relationship, I fell head over heels in this, and I got hurt, I don't want to be in a relationship again. That's, all of us have stories like that. In order for us to practice vulnerability, you need to understand the deep truth behind vulnerability. Why is this so important to God? Why is this so important to us? God is not a sadist. He's not doing all this so we can get, just get hurt. Here's the reason why vulnerability is so important to God, and therefore it's so important to us. Because if you look at vulnerability, there's two sides to it. On one side, you could get hurt. But hear me. On the other side, you get to be known. I'm going to say it one more time. On one side, the vulnerabilities, you get really hurt. But on the other side, you actually get to have intimacy. True intimacy. You guys hear what I'm saying? This is huge. True intimacy. True connection. You see... The heart of God is for intimacy and connection. God exists in the triune trinity in deep connection and relationship and intimacy and vulnerability of each other. And when he created man and woman in his own image, he placed that same desire for intimacy, that same wiring, the same architecture, the same DNA to be connected to each other in every single one of us. Therefore, unless we have deep and utter and vulnerability and connection with each other, we won't truly live and be truly alive. We won't be truly functional, and we can't truly give glory to God. That's how God made us to be. We were made to be known and to know others. And in order to do that, we have to go through the path of vulnerability. But many of us, because of hurts and wounds in the past, and many of us, it's not our fault we have abandoned intimacy. We have given up on intimacy. We have given up on invulnerability. We have these huge walls up. I'm never going to be hurt again by people. I'm never going to let people in. You might never say it, but that's what you did in your heart. That's what your action speaks. Yeah, you might not be hurt in the obvious way, but you are dying inside. And you never get to experience when Jesus says, I came to give you life. And life to the full. 
And that full life is a life of vulnerability. I want to connect the dots here. Let's go back to shame. How does this connect to shame? To overcome shame in the middle of the storm of shame, we must embrace the one thing shame will not let us go to. In the middle of the shame storm, shame is saying, I'll give you everything in the world, but don't you dare be vulnerable. Don't you dare let anyone in. Don't you dare. Because if you did, they will reject you. They will push you out. They will cast you away. They will hurt you. They will stab you. So don't you dare let people in to know who you are. In the middle of the storm of shame, we must learn to drop our guards, lower our shields, and be vulnerable with someone you love and you trust. And invite them to intimacy, to truly know you, the good, the bad, and definitely the ugly. God has invited us to become vulnerable with him. Why? So that we can know him and he can know us. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I don't even realize how many walls I have put up with me and God. There is almost no vulnerability with me and God. I didn't even realize this. Throughout my childhood, through the pains and the hurts I had, I have built so many emotional barriers with me and God. And this past couple weeks, God's been challenging me. He says, son, you have so many walls up. Be vulnerable with me, man. I can't even get That's a whole other sermon. That's so deep. There's so many areas in my life I don't even understand. But in closing, I just want to talk about vulnerability. That's baby steps, right? Let's just talk about vulnerability with each other, with other stuff, of the, the, the people closest around you. One or two person to allow them to really know you. Now, I want to speak to the husbands real quick. Many of you would say you love your wife, and you probably do. But have you been vulnerable with your wife? Have you been vulnerable with her? Maybe that's the reason why she hasn't been vulnerable with you. I know we sleep next to our wife every night, but do we really know her? Do you know her deepest fears, anxieties, and, and frustrations? Do you know the, her, the deep desires of her heart? I sure thought I did. I thought I had a great relationship with my wife. A few months ago, my wife told me the deepest thoughts of fear and shame, the dark thoughts, suicidal thoughts, and whatever, she'd never share with me. She, she felt like she could never share with me. And I was shocked. I'm like, man, I thought I knew you. I thought I knew your deepest desire. And I thought I had a really good marriage. And since then, we have been working so hard, baby steps at a time, to practice vulnerability with each other. She would share with me. I would share with her. Just a tiny bit. Hey, babe, this thing happened, and I felt utterly worthless. I just want to share with you. I'm telling you, this process of practicing vulnerability has been incredibly painful and scary. I would even say sometimes it feels like you're dying. But I have to go Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it.
So, in closing, here's my question for you. Do you rather live in the walls, the safety of your shields and your barriers, of your invulnerability? Maybe that's your reputation, your career, your religious activities, your service, your money, your success. Or do you rather venture out and overcome shame with vulnerability? You know, in James chapter, 56, chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sin to one another so that you may be healed. And prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We all know that verse, right? I used to hate this verse. I thought it was legalism. I thought, man, if I don't confess my sin and tell people the bad things I did, God will forgive me, but he would never like me. Honestly, that's how I felt about that verse. When I go to James, I, I skip that verse. It stirs up all kinds of insecurities in me that God doesn't like me. After studying vulnerability, I realized that's not what that verse is about at all. God's inviting us to be vulnerable with each other. When I share with my wife my weaknesses, my flaws, the deep fears and shame of my heart, you know, throughout my day, when shame hits me, when I'm in the middle of the storm, I pull out my phone, I have a notepad, I, I, I write it down. The other day, I'll give you an example. A few days ago, um, I was putting a life group video on YouTube, our YouTube channel, and I was looking at the different videos, and I saw a one sermon that Pastor Ron preached, the first sermon of our series. And like our normal YouTube hits is like this, and that one's like this. And my first thought is, you would never be able to communicate like a pastor. You would never be as good as him. No one ever cared. You know, just, just negatively on and on. I don't know where it came from. I know where it came from. It didn't come from me. It came from shame. It starts going, coming at me. I mean, again, in a few seconds, I felt this small. What did I do? I pulled out my phone, rolled it down. Talk to Debbie about you two. Once I rolled that down on my phone, I moved on. I moved on my day. I didn't think about it until I got home. I said, hey, babe, I just want to share with you. This is the source of my shame today. Yesterday, we had a, a birthday party for my son, Nehemiah, our first birthday party for our kids. And my wife was trying so hard. I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. But hey, vulnerability, right? She was working so hard to make cupcakes. And who knew making cupcakes is so difficult? Three batches later, um, whatever, trying to make that topping, the whatever, buttercream. It's like buttercream all over my house now. If you want some really nasty tasting buttercream, it's all over our house. I was at Marcus here. She texted me. She says, I'm full of shame right now because I can't make those cupcakes. I know exactly what she means. We're not trying to change each other in the middle of all of that. We just hurt each other and we pray for each other. And I say, hey, babe, I'm going to go to Jewel Osco and buy a dozen, two dozen cupcakes. We'll be fine. You see, this is exactly how, this is how practical it works. In the middle of our shame, we share vulnerability with each other. And then we bring it to our Lord and Savior. We bring it to him because he took our shame. Jesus took your shame. He overcame your shame. You guys all know this verse. But this verse, after learning about vulnerability and shame, I read Hebrews 12. And it's never the same again. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of his father. Jesus shamed shame. He put shame in his place. He triumphed over shame. How did he triumph over shame? Through military power, through angels, through power. 
He triumphed over shame by vulnerability on the cross. The hero we really need is vulnerable man. The man of sorrow, Jesus Christ. He overcame shame through vulnerability. And he's inviting you to be like him. Practice vulnerability. I'm telling you, once you start practicing this, once you start being known by others, you start to grow, you start to change, you start to transform. You're like, wow, is this how life is supposed to be? Yeah, it's going to be painful sometimes, don't get me wrong. Will it be uncomfortable? Yes. But I want to ask you, do you want to be more like Christ? Do you want to walk in the path that Jesus walked? We invite you to walk in vulnerability today. Amen? Amen. Hey, have an awesome Sunday. We love you. We're here for you. We'd love to pray with you. If you want to share, if you want to share your vulnerability, we have some leaders up here to pray with you. Have an awesome day. Hey, practice vulnerability today. Amen.